Welcome to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. My name is Stacey and I'm so excited that you are joining me for season two of this podcast where we talk all things living a prophetic life. We have so many great conversations coming up, all purpose to equip and inspire you and to get you thinking about how God might be speaking to you and through you today. Yes, you. So let's go. Welcome to the Prophetic Collective Podcast Season 2. To kick off this brand new season, we are going on an 11 episode journey where we answer one of life's most defining questions. What is worship to you? Is it slow songs during a church service? Is it only for people who can sing? What if worship was more than a song and more than an experience within the four walls of the church? What if there was more to worship even than what we have experienced so far? What if we could unlock the fullness of worship and see it transform our everyday lives? These are the questions that Stacey tackles in her first book, Worship Is. These are also the questions we will tackle in this collection. And available to you today, as valued listeners of the Prophetic Collective, is a very special offer. Head to stacyhillier.com and purchase your very own copy of Worship Is using the code Prophetic Collective, all in caps, and you will get free express postage. Also available to podcast listeners is a free workbook that you can complete as you join in this Worship Is collection. Designed to be used with both the book and podcast collection, you can download your free copy at stacyhillier.com under the free resources tab. Hey ho everybody, welcome back to the Prophetic Collective. We are on our second last episode of the Worship Is collection and I announced last week that we are soon moving on to a five-week collection on spiritual practices where we look at things like breath prayers, examen, Ignatian meditation, which is scriptural meditation. We look at things like Lectio Divina. You are going to love it. And as prophetic people, these are deep wells of encounter with God that I know you are going to love. So today I have captioned worship is a mirror. Worship is a mirror. Now, this is one of the most challenging quotes I've ever read. I've popped it in your workbook for those who have downloaded it. It's not too late to get that. Make sure you do jump onto the website under free resources because it really will help you go deeper. A.W. Tozer, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Wow, 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 wow. Let me tozer it up again. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. I want to open today by talking about those seasons in life when you experience a distance between you and God. I don't mean like a spiritually dry season, although there's some of those too. I mean those seasons where you're avoiding God's presence. And if you're anything like me, you'll be very aware of the fact that uh, God didn't put the walls there because he's kind of an expert at taking them down, that you're the one who's put those walls up. What this looks like for me is I'll, I'll avoid silence and solitude on Sabbath. And that's an alert for me. Hey, you've got some walls up. And sometimes it's because people I love have disappointed me or let down. Somehow I hold God responsible for that. And before I know it, there's a bit of a distance. 
And so I found that it's most often in the place of worship and surrender that those walls in my life have come tumbling down. And I found myself able to see God clearly and receive his perspective on what I'm facing. So if you're finding living a life of worship a bit uh, tough today, whether it's reading your Bible, silence and solitude, whether it's the shoulder to shoulder experience, whether it's stillness, uh, whether it's worship as your medicine, any of the captions we've had so far, just stop and ask Holy Spirit, do I have any walls up with you in my life right now? Might sound like a crazy question but chances are he'll answer. And when those walls come down, we find ourselves able to see God clearly and receive his perspective on what we are facing. You know, I remember a moment following my second miscarriage and I was quietly crying on the couch and the Holy Spirit said to me, go to the piano and worship me. I'm going to tell you the last thing I felt like doing in that moment was singing to God. And so I ignored him for a while. (laughs) I seem to have a pattern of that in this collection, don't I? But I was really hurting. He's like, Stacey, go to the piano and sing. And so eventually after arguing with God, I sat down at the piano and I wrote a song called You Cover Me. And I didn't even believe at the time the lyrics that flowed out of me. I wrote, you are the peace that quiets me. You are the strength that lights my way. You light my way. I look to you. I'll never thirst. I'll trust in you. You cover me. You cover me. The chorus was, Jesus, Jesus, I yearn for you. You're all I need. Jesus, Jesus, I long for you. You're all I need. You're all I need. The bridge was, you lead me by still waters and restore my soul. You lead me by still waters, restore my soul. You're all I need. What was incredible about that was within 12 months, I got to sing that song as part of our church's television program where we covered the story of an incredible couple from Sydney who tragically lost their little boy in the first few months of his life. And I got to sing those lyrics over them. It was simple, but it was all I could manage in that season. And yes, I sang those words before I believed them while I still had walls up in my heart. But as I positioned myself in worship and God revealed his great love to me, my desire to ask why decreased. As he revealed his love in all its depth, width and height, I didn't need to understand because I just knew that I was loved and that was enough. And it took time, but the walls eventually came down and on the other side of my test, I had a testimony to sing. And you see, the problem with allowing those walls to remain is that while they are there, we cannot fully receive from God all that he wants to pour into our lives, let alone do what he's called us to do, which is reflect Christ to others around us. And so we need those walls to come down. And I love that in the book of Joshua, we see biblical precedent for worship being the key to breakthrough in the walls of containment coming down in our lives. So the Israelites have finally crossed into the promised land and they're primed to conquer Jericho when God issues a rather strange set of instructions for conquest. Now, Joshua was an accomplished military leader, but he was now not to rely on his experience in warfare, but he was to display unwavering obedience to the specific commandments God gave him. You know, as prophetic people, as worshippers, sometimes we can't rely on our experience. We have to rely more on obedience. Don't always fall back on your experience. We need to be listening for the voice of God and walking in obedience. That can sometimes be the very thing that brings the walls down in our lives and in others. And Joshua was actually commanded not to use ordinary weapons of warfare, but to march around the city for six successive days in silence 
other than the noise of marching feet and seven priests who were blowing jubilee trumpets. Now, these trumpets were typically used to proclaim the presence of God at Israel's solemn feasts. But in this instance, they were used to signify to every person hiding within the walls of Jericho that God's presence was encircling them. The trumpets were not the only symbol of God's sovereign presence that paraded repeatedly around the city. The Ark of the Covenant followed closely behind. And we've talked about this before because the Ark symbolized God's presence with his people. Imagine for a moment that you're walled up in the city for six days, hearing nothing but marching feet and the sound of warfare trumpets. It would be pretty intimidating, right? And then on the seventh day, the Israelites were commanded to march around the city seven times. The word says in Joshua 6, verse 16, and then verse 20, shout for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now, archaeological excavation of this site has revealed it wasn't only the walls of Jericho that fell flat that day, but the walls in several locations fell flat at the sound of the trumpet blast and the nonsensical faith shout of the people of God. Now, we've already talked about worship is warfare, but here in this beautiful scene of worship in the midst of adversity, despite natural and human logic, they defeated the enemy. And this is because the conquest of Jericho wasn't just a military undertaking, but personal and corporate worship warfare. As the trumpets blasted and the shout was released, the spiritual realm was filled with echoes of Psalm 24-7, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, let's personalize this. When we sense walls in our hearts, but we choose to worship, we're ruling our souls and spirits, commanding our hearts to let the King of glory come in. And it's them with freed up hearts that are no longer segmented by walls of disappointment or shame or even condemnation that we can begin to reflect this glory to the world around us as we were created to. And Paul teaches us that when the secrets of our heart are disclosed, our response should be to worship. And I don't know about you, but like I encouraged you in that practice before, sometimes we're not even aware of why we've constructed walls. So it's a good practice when you sense that distance to just ask the Holy Spirit to show you what may be hidden inside of you. We can pray, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You see, the goal is to remove the wall so that we can both receive and reflect God's glory. Remove, receive and reflect. And just like it was for the Israelites, the strategy to remove, receive and reflect was worship. I absolutely love what worship granddaddy Ray Hughes talks about. He describes the war for worship that originated in the heart of the first worship leader, Lucifer. We've already talked about Lucifer being an angel whose name meant light bearer. Many commentators believe that Lucifer did not need to pick up a musical instrument to lead worship because his very being had the ability to make the sounds of all the instruments required to bring worship to God. Wow. And these Christian scholars state that all the sounds of heaven and earth resided in Lucifer's very being. Far out. 
Lucifer also wore a breastplate that contained stones that were designed to reflect the glory of God. And he was stationed as one of three archangels within the throne room of God. And his role was to direct his body towards the throne, capture God's glory, and then reflect it to all of God's creation and humanity so that they could then respond to God's glory in turn. How cool is that? This was his role as the worship leader. And guess what? It's still the role of the worship leader and every single worshiper today. That's you and me. The problem was pride entered Lucifer's heart and he wanted to keep the glory for himself. One who was created to be a reflection of God's glory instead chose to absorb it into his own heart and being and it eventually destroyed his calling. I have worked with too many worshippers. I have journeyed with too many prophetic people who make the same choice where they absorb the glory into their own heart intended for God and it ultimately destroys our calling. Hughes, in speaking of the moment when Satan was cast out of heaven, says, if pride turned angels into demons, guess what it will do to you and me? We were never intended to absorb absorb God's glory and not pass it on. We're designed and created to reflect God in all his glory to the world around us. In really simple terms, we cannot give away what we have not already received. God can only do through us what he has already done in us. I love what Pete Scazzaro says. He says, we give away who we are, specifically who we are in God. This means we only give away what we possess. Let me ask you, what have you given away in the last 24 hours? Let's remember that in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this word image is the word salem. means to be made in God's likeness, patterned and modeled after our Father God. In the New Testament, the Greek word used for image is the word ikon. And this word describes having the same form as something else. Looking at how this word was used in the Greco-Roman culture, we see that a denarius was a coin used within the Roman Empire that was stamped with the econ of Caesar. The inscription of the Roman leader on the denarii identified the authenticity and the value of the coins. The imagery here is that you and I are stamped as exact replicas of our Heavenly Father And this is what gives us our sense of identity and value when we behave authentically as we were created to. In Colossians 1.15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There we have that word again. Jesus is the econ of his father. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus this way. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's Hebrews 1.3. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is the exact imprint of God in nature and character. And we, in our purest, original, Eden-like state, were also created this way. Meditate on that. You're created as an exact replica. You're a chip off the old block. And when we understand we're an exact imprint, that we're a coin stamped with the image and imprint of our king who determines our identity and our value, it will change the way we live and approach life. By design, we are created to reflect and mirror God to the world around us. The problem is this. 
you and I, just like the unrighteous people that Paul referred to in his letter to the Romans, have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images or for icons resembling mortal man. So here in Romans 1.23, Paul's referring to pagan idol worship, but we can apply this to our lives today. We've been given an eternal identity because we're created in the image of an immortal, invisible, eternal God. And yet so often we exchange or lay down this eternal image for an external imposed image that is temporary and fleeting. And when we allow the world's culture or other people's opinions and the values of our society rather than kingdom to determine our value, we become a foolish person who hears the word and truth of God about our identity but does not apply it. In Matthew 7, 27, we read of the foolish person who did just that, heard the word but did not apply it. It says the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The thing is, we want our walls to fall down, not the whole house. Because this doesn't mirror God well to our world. James 1, 23 to 24, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he's like. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve gave into the accusation, the questioning and the deception of the serpent, their vision changed. How they saw the world altered, how they saw God was corrupted, even how they saw themselves was compromised. Before their sin, they only saw the world as God saw it, literally all G. But in Genesis 3, 6, we read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here it comes. Cue the dramatic worship. Dun-dun, 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 verse 7, verse 7, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. Now, this is quite a contradictory little passage because we read that the tree was a delight to their eyes, which indicates that both Adam and Eve had no issue with their natural vision. But after giving into deception and eating the fruit, the eyes of both were opened. What does that mean? What it means is that before they ate of that tree, they literally only had the ability to see good. But after they gave into the accusations of Satan, they ate of the fruit, they forfeited heaven's perspective and could see evil. The way they saw themselves and one another changed and they attempted to cover their sin and shame and hide themselves in the presence of the Lord. And I found we tend to do the same thing. We start to believe the accusations of the enemy. It changes our perception of ourselves and God's word and his world. It changes our vision. And then we cover ourselves. We build walls. We hide in shame and we avoid God's, God's presence. And the problem with that is while we're cloaked in shame and hiding behind a tree, we can't mirror God to the world around us. And here's the good news. Jesus came and he changed everything. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, there's that word, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here, this word behold means to reflect, to reflect God's glory, to mirror his glory to the world. 
We do this with increasing effectiveness as we go through the process of being transformed like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And this is all facilitated by the work of the Holy Spirit when we position ourselves in worship. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the message. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. So worship mirrors the true state of our lives back to us. It reveals walls and obstacles and it transforms us back into our Eden-like state where we can reflect or mirror God to the world around us. And then we live Romans 12 lives. And as we daily choose to keep showing up in our place of intimate worship with God, as we offer our lives to him, it is the ultimate act of love and adoration. We become the priests and Levites before God. As we make the choice not to conform to the culture of this world, but to mirror God effectively through transformational worship, we become the royal priesthood described in 1 Peter 2.9, who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, when my baby girl was about two years old, we went Christmas shopping together and we needed to head up a few floors in a large department store, but the escalator was um, broken. So we had to go in the lift. So we're standing at the elevator doors with what felt like half of Melbourne. And when the doors finally opened, I took her by the hand and headed into the crowded lift. Now, honestly, we probably didn't really fit, but I wasn't waiting any longer. So I stood pressed face to face with the crowd. I couldn't even turn around. And Eden stood pressed with a face pressed against a bunch of kneecaps and thighs. And so I looked down at Eden and she'd actually begun to cry. And so I bent down to pick her up and immediately the tears dried and her little face lit up in a big smile. And she said, we go shopping now, mummy. <laughs> so my daughter, what had changed? We we're in the same lift with the same crowded mess of humanity, but she had a new vantage point, the safety of my hip. And this is a picture of what happens to us when we worship. We may be acutely aware of the dirt and mess of our lives, the walls we've allowed to be constructed, our sin and our shame. But as we begin to lift our praise and our worship to the one who has stamped us with his very nature, we come higher and we realign with our eternal identity and we shine so the whole world can see his glory. Now, I'm going to draw this to a conclusion by speaking really honestly for a moment. I I trust that you guys know my heart by now. I want to speak honestly to the church because I I just want you to hear these words motivated by love. Part of my role in the church, I oversee all the worshippers of our church globally as well as the prayer teams, etc. But I'm talking about worship for a moment here. I often have people who approach me before and after services. I receive emails all the time from people telling me what they don't like about the song selection, about the lights, about the cameras, about the singers, about the worship leaders, about the drums, and many, many other things. Now, I hear people's hearts, and of course, I know we grow through feedback, right? But here's the thing. Our worship was never meant to mirror our likes, preferences, or dislikes. Worship was never intended to be a service for us. Worship is meant to mirror God's likes, God's truths, God's nature, and God's glory. Worship is our service and our ministry to God. Things are going to get messed up real quick if God reflects us. We are called to reflect Him. We are made in His image and called to bring heaven to earth by walking in the fullness 
of our eternal identity. Worship is a mirror. It's a mirror held up to our hearts so that we can be free from shame, condemnation and separation. Worship is a life that chooses to gaze at Jesus, to catch a glimpse of his reflection and then bounce back praise and adoration at what he reveals. And as we do this, as he reveals himself and we respond, we become more like him and then we mirror him to a world that needs him desperately. So I close this chapter in the book by personalizing that opening Toza quote. Does your worship reflect the culture around you or the Christ within you? Worship is a mirror. Who is your worship reflecting? Now in your workbook, some of the things we ask you to work through and give you space to work through is describe a season where you allowed walls to be put up in your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what the root of that is. We get you to journal on whether you've ever struggled with pride, looking at the story of Lucifer. We look at reflecting on personal worship times. Do they reflect your personal likes or do they reflect God's? And then we get you to go a little bit deeper with what we call a response practice and then a going deeper practice. Worship is a mirror. Who is your worship reflecting? Holy Spirit, speak to me. Who's my worship reflecting? Me, the world, your world, your heart. These are the things that are available to you in the workbook. It's not too late to get your copy under the free resources tab. Okay, next week, final episode of our Worship Is Collection. Thanks so much for coming on the journey. Thanks for rating this podcast. Thanks for sharing it on social media, sharing it with your friends. And thanks for reviewing. It means that we can get the word out to more people. This podcast is all about living a prophetic life. We cannot live a prophetic life without living a worshipping life. And I pray that today Worship is a Mirror has really blessed you. Let me know if it has. Let me know what stood out to you, what you learned today. I'm always learning from you and I love hearing from you. Been so good to be with you today. Thanks for giving me your time. Love you all. And I'll talk to you next week in our last episode of our Worship is Collection. Bye. know that Stacy also has a guided prayer podcast. Contemplative prayer is a rich, deep and rewarding way to encounter Jesus and the scriptures. With instrumental scores written to empower your encounters with Jesus, these prayers are a chance to be still and to step out of the hustle of today's fast-paced world. Available wherever you get your podcasts by searching Guided Prayers with Stacey Hillier.